a mikvah takes priority over a Torah scroll. It's mm-hmm. more important. But I've been in, like, I think of all the Messianic congregations that I've been in, with, and they all have Torah scrolls, mm-hmm. right? I mean, almost all of them. And, mm-hmm. and we have, like, you know, what, four? Four. Four yeah. Torah scrolls. Baruch Hashem. Yeah, Baruch Hashem. But, uh, but no mikvah. But no mikvah. Yeah. Is, is that true? Have you heard that before? But, oh, yeah, absolutely. You're, matter of fact, you're supposed to, if you have a Torah, you're supposed to be willing to sell the Torah in order to raise funds to build a mikvah. Well, there we go. Well, now now we're on the hook again. It's us, not them. But we should sell some of those sell Torahs. Sell those Torahs. Am Yisrael is a podcast of Beth Emanuel Messianic Synagogue in beautiful, historic Hudson, Wisconsin, where Messianic Judaism is more than an idea. It's really happening. Okay, we're re- we are now recording. This is our mikvah episode. The mikvah episode. Mikvah. Mikveh, if you will. If you will. The very first place that the mikvah, the word mikvah shows up in the Bible is actually in the creation narrative. Ah, that's right. Where he's, uh, he, he, collects the water together and that's what it means a mikvah is a collection of water so here's the here's the thing ami we want to um raise five hundred thousand dollars give or take a little less than that to build a facility in the parking lot of beth emmanuel that will essentially be a glorified bathhouse it's going to have a immersion pool in it one or two immersion pools a men's version and a women's version mm-hmm. uh, on opposite sides and uh, it's called a mikvah that's what it is it's an immersion pool it's part of Judaism so that's what we want to talk about we want to explain this premise and why we would need to do this okay sounds good let's do it all right so you tell me you have educate ed- educate me um, I mean I only know practical things from my own experience in in life and um, uh, my own experience uh, going to mikvahot and uh, I guess also my experience of being married and having a wife who goes to the mikvah. Um, you know, there's a there's an amazing story. Uh, I think this story, I'm not, I've, I've heard the story attributed to different people and I think it's the Chernobyl, the Chernobyler, the Chernobyler Rebbe. I believe this is where the story comes from. There's different versions of it. But essentially, uh, the Rebbe comes to town. He comes to this village. And in this village, they have no mikvah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe they never had a mikvah. The mikvah was damaged or something else. I don't know. But they don't have a mikvah. Okay. And the Rebbe comes to the town. And he asks the people. He gathers all the wealthy man, men of the town. And he says, who's going to fund this mikvah? And eventually, a man steps up. In another version of the story, uh, he goes to his house. But the man steps up and he says, look, I'll pay for the mikvah if you give me your world, your place in the world to come. If you sign over your place in the world to come, I'm going to pay for the mikvah. That and, sounds like that. That sounds like a, a good bargain. Okay, so we're talking about 500,000. What about a world to come? So, so this Rebbe says, okay, absolutely. He tells his students, go get me a, go get me a pen and get me a parchment. And he writes out a certificate and he hands over his portion of Olam Haba, his portion in the world to come, uh, to this man. And, and the man funds the building of a mikvah and everything, but 
the students of the Rebbe are absolutely disturbed. Right, because now the Rebbe is not going to be part of the resurrection of the righteous. What's it's going like, on? Yeah, so it's like that, that did not, you just sold your, you sold your eternal salvation. So now they come to the Rebbe and they ask him, how on earth, how did you do this? Why, why would you sign away your world to come for a mikvah? And the Rebbe said, you know, my entire life, I've had this fear just in the back of my mind constantly, a fear that perhaps I was serving God only out of a desire for reward. Mm. And he said, now I'm finally set free and I know that everything I do for him is only out of love. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that this, this story, it captured now in, in the, uh, in, when this story is told, they say that when, when the Rebbe gave over his portion of the world to come, the angels kind of were in awe of his, uh, his humility and his uh, bravery and his self-sacrifice and his giving over this most precious thing, the world to come. And so they gave him a second portion. Okay, that's the answer. They gave him a second portion. So everything worked out. It was a happy ending. <laughs> everything, everything worked out. It's okay. But now, but now for us, you know, what, what would we say? We would say... Well, this is, this is absolutely the heart of God. This is, you know, one of the greatest things that Moses ever did was challenge Hashem. When Hashem said, I want to destroy the Jewish people, Moses stood up and said, if you're going to destroy them, blot my name out of your book. Right. And he wasn't just, right. he wasn't talking about the Torah. He's saying, blot my name out of, out of the book of life. Right. Which is, just, is the same thing the Rebbe was offering in, in this. In, in, I never really thought of it that way, but you're exactly right. He's, he's saying, take me out of the book of life. In other words, forfeit my place in the world to come. Mm -hmm. Because this, what he was doing is he was taking upon himself the same risk that is hanging over the head of every Jewish man who, um, doesn't have access for his family for a mikvah. So either a couple different things might be happening. If there's no mikvah, either families are being separated and that's unhealthy and traumatizing and, mm -hmm. and negative, or women are risking their lives immersing in the wintertime in a, in a river. Or, Frozen river, breaking uh, open the ice. Lots of stories from Russia about that, about women going out oh, and, and breaking a hole in the ice in order to immerse uh, so once a month. risking their lives um, to, to do this, uh, this mitzvah, I guess, or, or in some sense it's not a mitzvah. They, they could just separate from their husbands. So they're, they're risking their lives to do this. Um, and, and it's all negative. It's all bad. And so the Rebbe comes and says that more important then my personal salvation, if you want to say it that way, is the salvation of the entire people. Mm -hmm. And and if I can stand in the gap and risk my own world to come, well, I'm willing to do that. And so, so he, uh, I should say that because the Torah says, what's the punishment for a man who is with his wife when she's during her time of nida, when she's on her menstrual cycle, or she right, has an right. immersed it's, it's it's pretty it's pretty severe. He's, it's he's pretty cut severe. Off. He's cut off. He's cut off from Israel, which can mean that can mean either death mm -hmm. uh, by death heaven, by heaven, mm -hmm. uh, or by the court of men. Uh, but this in this case, this would be death by heaven, which uh, then begs questions about eternal destinies once mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. And so we so a mikvah is central to the Jewish family. I mean, wh why, why did Hashem say that he heard our, our, our cries in Mitzrayim? It's because the families were being separated. Right. Right? Because of, of men and women being separated from each other. So that kind of 
that's not the that's not how Hashem wants family life to be. Right. Just to explain for those maybe who didn't catch that reference, the idea is that uh, in Mitzrayim in Egypt, when Pharaoh imposed the harsh decrees upon the Bnei Israel, the children of Israel in Egypt, saying that every child, every every boy needs to be cast into the river, the the people solved that problem by not having children mm-hmm. and they managed to not have children by practicing birth control by separating families and this is why Amram left Yocheved. Mm-hmm. And uh, Yocheved who is this uh, amazing woman who has this very uh, Jewish sen- sense of uh, legal interpretation. She says okay well, we have to throw our sons in the water I'm going to put them in a basket first. Right. And so he, so it goes through but, but this is the suffering that causes Hashem to intervene. Right. Is the separation between a man and his wife. And so a mikvah is fundamental to that unity and the the purity of a marital relationship. Also, you know, I'm I'm sure most people have heard this kind of idea that um you know, we don't have a Beit HaMikdash anymore. We mm-hmm. don't have a temple anymore. And the main aspect of a mikvah is purification for entering the Beit HaMikdash. Right. But the marital relationship itself is like the Holy of Holies. It's the thing that you don't talk about in public. It's the thing that you don't uh, uh, walk in on. It's the thing that's private and it's concealed and it's only for, it's only for uh, you know, the, the couple alone. It's holy. It's separate. Mm-hmm. It's different from everything else, mm-hmm. and and it has that same status and that same needed purity. Um, um, not saying that. Uh, well, it, it's an amazing actually. It's an amazing example of of Jewish thought on on the marital relationship. It's it's a relationship of purity. It's not something that's unclean. Right. It's something that's pure. Right. And so in 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 the Talmud we have a tractate about marriage called Kiddushin. That is sanctities holy holiness uh for that very reason whereas the rest of the world you know the you've got you've got the religious world saying sex is dirty sex is bad uh you've got the secular world saying sex is great sex is everything Mm -hmm. uh the jewish answer is is no neither of you uh, both of you are wrong sex is holy Mm -hmm. absolutely so now what are some of the complications in that? I mean, so if, if we just say, okay, sex is holy and the marital relationship is, is one of Kedusha and it's like the Beit HaMikdash and, and uh, you've got a Rebbe who's going to give up his life, but still when it comes down to $500,000, well, that, that's too much. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I know. What causes that? Where's the break in, in the train of thought there? Yeah, it's $500,000 for a bathtub. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. Right. Right? What's right. going on here? Right. And so, so what is going on? Well, maybe this is a good point for us to um, to take a look at the text and to start digging into the text. Okay. And uh, go back to Leviticus. Yeah, back to Leviticus. Okay. As they say, you just happen to have a Bible. Here. <laughs> it just so happened. I don't have it's it a, open though. No, it's all right. It's a David Stern, uh, complete Jewish Bible, mm-hmm. uh, in his hands, and he's flipping the pages even mm-hmm. now. Looking for that. That'll be the book of Vayikra mm-hmm. in the David Stern edition. What I want to see is this passage here. Um, let's find the exact verse for them. But a spring. Oh yeah. yeah or yeah, a cistern. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. right. 
Okay, spring. Collecting water remains. Okay, go. go for it. Read it. Oh, up. you want me to read it? Yeah, yeah. You got you got that voice. Okay. Uh, okay, so here's Leviticus eleven thirty six. Although a spring or cistern for collecting water remains clean, anyone who touches one of their carcasses, a, a carcass of an unclean animal, mm-hmm. uh, will become unclean. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Okay, so now, so a, a mikvah has an unusual quality. First of all, we see that there's two kinds of mikvahot. Okay, there's two mikvahs. One is uh, a bore mikvah, which is like a cistern in the ground. Okay, that's a hole in the ground. A hole in the ground that holds water. And mm-hmm. when you put water into it, you don't visibly see water leaking out. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, a cistern in the earth, uh, just basically a deep muddy pool is fine okay okay um so and again this is a question of why so expensive if we can just dig a, uh, a hole in the ground and immerse in it try getting your wife to do that and then, uh, unfortunately there's been too many guys who have tried to get their wife <laughs> to do that but um uh or so there's a a, a bore mikvah a bore means a pit or a cistern and then there's a mikvah mayan which is a a, a spring or a well and those are two different kinds of mikvah oat so whereas the bore mikvah um, can't have a leak, it has to hold water, um, and if there's a leak, then it's invalid. The mikvah mayan is obviously the spring is uh, it's it's something else. There's a different category of 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 a mikvah. It's actually on a higher level. Sure, it's a more desirable mikvah. I think I think the ocean also has the status of a mikvah mayan if you're in uh, a difficult position. But again, try getting your wife to go out in the middle of the ocean at night and, uh, and yeah, yeah, and we live here and fly over land as long ways to the ocean. That's not happening. So, but uh, you have these two different kinds of mikvaot, and uh, you can't combine them. And you know, I've heard people because you have this talk about living water. I've heard people say like, "Oh no, it was you know I I made a kosher mikvah in my bathroom or whatever because I uh, I filled up the bathtub and, and then I left I the drain open, left the drain open, and right. I turned the shower the, on. Yep, sure. At the okay. same time, I, it's this whole whole crowd of folks who are probably still doing this right now. I'm not trying to knock you, but um, but that's not a mikvah, and that doesn't qualify as a mikvah. And what does qualify as a mikvah comes directly from the Torah. And is um, established even further. We see in the Brachadasha. We we see stories about mikvaot being used, and um, it's it's not a shower. Yeah, I wanted. I'm glad you brought that up. That, that this is really. It's not just a Leviticus concept. It's mm-hmm. not just a Vayikra concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is a. It's something that comes out very strongly in the New Testament. It's mm-hmm. very very much a part of apostolic faith and practice. Right, starting mm-hmm. with John the Immerser. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it's right in the guy's name. He's called John the Immerser. The Immerser. Yochanan. Yeah. And where was he doing it? He was doing it in a river. Um, now, not every river qualifies as, uh, as a mikvah mayan. Why? Now, there are some rivers that just appear when it rains heavily. Okay. Okay, so that is not a spring or a well. Mm-hmm. It's deceptive because it, it looks superficially the same as as another river that's fed by groundwater somewhere. or um, But so you have to have the right conditions and uh, you have to have a, a, a river that's going to be a river 
in the in the middle of the summer, sure. uh, just as much as it's a river in the middle of the winter or right. in the rainy season. Yeah. So in in Israel, there's lots of these dry wadis and and such that mm. only mm-hmm. flow during the rainy season. Mm-hmm. So this becomes a concern. But the Jordan, uh, where John was immersing, it's consistent. Yeah, consistently. And and it comes out of the ground somewhere. Yeah, well, it comes out of the ground in the north shore of Galilee, on the north shore of Lake Galilee, where the master used to hang out and do fishing. And, and so probably immerse yeah. every once in a while. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh, now with John the Baptist, here's the in- interesting problem, is if this is a Jewish thing, and if this is coming from the Torah, then how come everyone is so shocked and upset, seemingly upset, about John's activity immersing people in the Jordan? Well, okay. You're asking me? I'm asking you. Oh, okay. I have my own thoughts, but right. I'm asking you. All right. What, well, what here, you, what here's think? my thoughts is, is because John is doing, he's calling people to come out to the, the river and immerse mm-hmm. themselves for repentance mm-hmm. and the confession of sins. Mm-hmm. So what he's doing is he's explicitly tying together the concept of uh, moral cleansing with ritual cleansing, mm-hmm. uh, which are ordinarily left left independent of each other, kind of separated. But, it, but John's message seems to me, it seems to me that John's message is that if you don't combine the two, uh, the one is not efficacious without the other. Uh, well, it, I should put it this way. Uh, immersion for ritual purity is not efficacious without uh, confession of sin, contrition, and repentance. Mm-hmm. That's how I'm understanding John, and that is a controversial idea. Mm-hmm. Now, I think for, for me, I'm right along with you, and I think for me, the hint is when they ask John, I think it's a group of Sadducees right? Yes, and priests from the temple Correct. who come out to him, and they ask him, are you Elijah? Right. He says, I'm not. And he says, I'm not Elijah. So the question is, how come they're asking him if he's Elijah? And I think the answer is goes back to something that comes up in um, Rambam's uh, Guide to the Perplexed, I believe. He talks about the idea that a prophet has the ability to suspend the Torah or to, to suspend some aspect of the Torah for a limited period of time. Right. And he gets this from scripture um, because we see that, was it the priest of Baal? Yeah, when Elijah yeah. is confronting the priest of Baal, he does something truly bizarre. There's no sacrifice outside the Beit Hamikdash, definitely not for a Jew. And Elijah goes outside of the Beit Hamikdash and he makes a he builds an altar and he has a duel with these followers of Baal. He says, "Okay, you're going to give an offering, I'm going to give an offering, and we're going to see whose god accepts which offering, right? right? Right. And Hashem accepts the offering of Eliyahu. So we know that this isn't a sin, this isn't a transgression or something that he's doing um, that Hashem is un- not pleased with because he recognizes the sacrifice. But it's a sacrifice outside of the Beit HaMikdash, which seems forbidden, except for the fact that he is a prophet of God. And so he's acting as a prophet and as such, he has the ability to suspend that mitzvah temporarily, which seems very bizarre, but we see it happen in scripture. And so when they come out to ask John, are you Elijah? I don't think that they're just asking him like, hey, are you 
are you Eliyahu? You look a little bit like Eliyahu and Navi. You got the same outfit on. Yeah, are you right. him? I don't think that's, that's simply it. They, they might have been asking him that. But what they were asking is, are you suspending the Torah? Are you... You're having people come out here to the river to make the shuva rather than going to the Beit Hamikdash and af- offering sacrifices. Right, and you, there's oh, well, there's mikvaot all over all over all Jerusalem. Over like yeah. you could, there's no reason to have to go down to the Jordan. Okay, right. Okay, and and, uh, and so so maybe that's the idea there. It's like it, what, what what why are you why are you forcing people to come out here for immersion? Yeah, are you are you like the Essenes? Are you turning your back on the Beit Hamikdash? And you're bringing people out here instead. But John's answer about that, he says, no, I'm not Elijah. And uh, I read into that. He's saying, no, I'm not suspending the Torah. That this isn't a suspension of the Torah. Right. This is right in line with the Torah. And the idea about bringing a sacrifice, you know, Hashem um, commands the korbanot, the sacrifices in the Torah and yet in the prophets, we see how unhappy he is with the sacrifices of the people of Israel. And so where's the disconnect there? And the disconnect is within the heart of the individual. Right. Uh, Moshe Rabbeinu and the early Israelites were extremely sensitive people. They were spiritual people. Um, and when they, when they brought an offering, it was expected that they would be affected by bringing that sacrifice and that it would... that killing that innocent animal would have an emotional effect uh, on the individual who was bringing it. But if you do anything enough times, you get callous towards it. And so the children of Israel had become callous. You you think to yourself, well, um, you know, I, I've got an extra uh, cow in the barn. I, I could probably get away. I could probably get away with this, and you know, maybe uh, that's how it works. You know, I, but it wasn't something that pleased Hashem. Right. He your, said it your was. Hearts a, are far from. It me. was a stench in his nostrils. You know, he says. It's, it's, he said it's like it's like snapping the neck of a dog. A man who kills an ox is the same as one who kills a human being. That's what it says. Yeah, Isaiah. Right? Uh, Meat, meat, meat is murder. No, but I'm not trying to go PETA, but I'm saying if you have the wrong intention, if you don't value um, what's going on, then it is. Um, it is murder. And, and, and so if, you, if you're making these sacrifices with no intention, and so what John says is, hey, you know what? Before we go and slaughter those animals, why don't we, why don't we die to ourselves? Yeah. Why don't we die to our own egos? out here in this river. And, you know, for people who are familiar, um, another usage of a mikvah, um, we're not going to use our mikvah this way. Um, we don't have the funds to build a mikvah for the dead, but there also is immersion of the dead. That's right. And and so this is something that, that John, um, I think he's using this kind of imagery of, of you know, you can... You can die to yourself now. You can make that choice to die to yourself now, and you can come down in this water, and and die to your ego, die to your arrogance, die to yourself, and and then when you go to the Beit Hamikdash to make that sacrifice, then you'll be pure within yourself. And I think that's part of his message, which also clearly gets rolled over into immersion for the followers of Yeshua, at least in the mind of Paul, um, where he tells us that that we've died with Yeshua through immersion, 
that he's referencing that Im- immersion to to dying to self and um, um, taking that real kind of step of of deciding, you know, I can wait to be judged by the heavenly court after I die, or I can choose to recognize, hey, I can admit my own guilt, I can confess my own sin, and I can decide to die today, and I can immerse myself. Yeah, yeah, you know, Arya Kaplan in his book, The Waters of Eden, which is an excellent book if you want an introduction to what we're talking about. 100%. uh, I recommend everybody read this book if you want to know anything about the mikvah. But he points out that the mikvah has this intrinsic symbolism of death and rebirth, Mm. death and resurrection. That he says that going into the mikvah is like going into the womb. So it's, this is the language of being born again, you know, and and coming out of the mikvah is like coming out of the womb. But then he says, but a mikvah is built in the ground. So going into the mikvah is like going into the grave. Does he say that? Yeah, he does. Yeah. And coming out of the mikvah is like, uh, is, is like being resurrected from the dead. And so, I believe that the Pharisees actually had this interpretation of the mikvah, and that this was just part of what, of Paul's schooling in the house in in the in the schooling under Gamaliel, was this concept that to go into the mikvah symbolizes your death, to come out of the mikvah symbolizes your resurrection, and I think that's that's still intact for Paul and for the early disciples of Yeshua when they're uh, immersing in His name. Now, if I'm not mistaken, also in that book, Arya Kaplan discusses uh, kind of why water, why why that's so important. Right. And he talks about Gan Eden yeah. and the idea that we are trapped outside of Gan Eden. There are these malachim with these flaming swords and, and, and we, we can't go back to Eden, but what comes out of Eden are these streams of water. That's right, the four rivers. The four rivers come out of Eden, and so water itself, it, it has its source in Eden. And to go back into that water is to, to come into contact with Eden again in a certain sense. Yep, yep. That's a beautiful, beautiful image. And so uh, that's the idea that uh, carries over into the New Testament, I think, of this like rebirth and this that Paul is, you were referencing mm-hmm. from Paul about... Uh, if if I've been immersed with Messiah, I've died with him. And if I've come out of the water uh, with the Messiah, I've been raised up with him to newness of life. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I've always I've thought about this. A lot of, uh, especially in previous generations, Messianic people would would tell these stories of, uh, I've, I've heard stories like this told at conferences of, you know, when I became a follower of Yeshua, my dad began reciting Kaddish for me. Um, because he, it was as if I was dead, or you hear right. stories about people even holding a funeral or something for right. for a son or a daughter who's who's you're dead to me. <laughs> exactly. Now, what's so wild is this is again this is one of those um, moments where Jews, in some sense, are understanding Christianity on a deeper level, maybe than even the Christians who are practicing it you know it's it's, you kind of become desensitized to something when you're around it all the time but what they're realizing someone who says Kaddish on behalf of someone who's been baptized right they're actually doing something really beautiful and I know that sounds odd because how could that be beautiful yeah they don't mean it in a nice way (laughs) (laughs) but somewhere back there somebody did and what they were doing is is 
if if getting baptized means becoming antinomian and um then it truly is like death because the one time that a jew is no longer obligated to keep the torah it's when they die right and and so if if you go in to the mikvah and you die in the sense that now you are no longer obligated to the torah the whole purpose of saying Kaddish for somebody who has died is that they're no longer in their body and they can no longer do mitzvot. And so what, what somebody says is, okay, this individual's passed passed on, my family members passed on, and so I'm going to say Kaddish in their name. I'm going to do a good deed. I'm going to praise God, which is what the prayer is, is doing. The prayer is essentially... Um, it doesn't say anything about death. It is only magnifying and glorifying God. And so they're, they're saying, I'm going to praise the greatness and the holiness and the sanctity of, of God on behalf of this person who's passed away and can no longer do, do so on their own. Right. And, and hopefully by doing that, I'm going to give them some kind of merit that they can't otherwise attain in the world to come right whether that works or not i i believe it does you don't have to but regardless you can see the beauty in that and so if a father is uh is saying kaddish on behalf of their child who's been immersed in water and is no longer practicing the torah well you know the person that person made a mistake they went into the water but they didn't come out so to speak Right. They went into death, but they forgot the resurrection part. The idea is the person goes into the water and then they come up out of the water that if you've died with Mashiach, if you died with Yeshua, that you'll also be raised to newness of life with him. Right. And what? Should we go on sinning? God forbid. What does Yeshua have to do with sin? And so if Yeshua is now, if the resurrected one is now alive in me, I should be expressing his deeds uh, through my own vessel, through this body. It is no longer I who live, but Mashiach who lives through me. Absolutely. Yeah. And so every one of those parents, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but every one of those parents who was reciting Kaddish on behalf of their um, child who's now no longer performing the commandments, they were actually, they were doing something right. It was the best thing, best thing they could have done for their child. Um, besides try to fix their broken relationship have a conversation <laughs> have a conversation <laughs> usually it's a problem with dad but 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 so you have you have these stories but i think the uh the broader picture really isn't filled out so well it's the same thing with that situation like with john you know we have an idea you often hear people in the jewish community say like Oh, uh, baptism, that's something Christian. It's totally unrelated. Um, it has nothing to do with... Well, when you say it that way, <laughs> baptism. I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, it's like, you know, baptism, it means... I mean, baptism is a sacrament. It's sure. a sacrament of the sure. church. You know, it sure. means becoming a Christian. That's what baptism has come to mean. But it's, it's too easy to forget that Yochanan was a Jew who was thinking and acting... Um, before Yeshua even began to publicly teach. Right. He, I mean, his immersion becomes the springboard for that, in fact. So you're saying he wasn't a Christian. Definitely but was. But he's baptizing people. Definitely wasn't a Christian. Wasn't and, a, I don't want to say it. <laughs> wasn't a Baptist. Yeah. And, uh, or a Presbyterian. And, 
but what he's doing, so whatever he's doing is is Jewish. Even if the Sadducees and uh, the priests from the temple um, want clarification about where he's coming from with this ritual, whatever it is he's doing, it's Jewish. Um, because Christianity doesn't exist at, at that time. Remember when the master asks, asks them and says, hey, I have a question for you. John's immersion, was mm. it from heaven or from mm. men? So, did, is was he speaking as a prophet? Was he introducing this as a prophet? You know, to combine, like we're saying, he's not introducing it. First of all, no. immersion is is a part of it's a part of Judaism from the Torah, uh, all the way back to Mount Sinai. Uh, so he's not introducing something new. So then, why why is Yeshua asking? He's asking, um, uh, combining it with this concept of confession of sin mm-hmm. and uh, repentance, tshuva, mm-hmm. uh, immersion for confession of sin and, and repentance. Is that from heaven? As Was was that Ruach HaKodesh from heaven? Was that John speaking as a prophet or was he just making it up? And they don't want to answer. They couldn't answer because the, the stakes were too high. Yeah. But we know that even rabbinically, um, so while the Torah doesn't directly say that um, character or morality can make a person become impure rabbinically it does it does bring an impurity and i think you can even make the argument from the torah i mean Mm -hmm. there are certain things that the torah like equates with impurity like Mm -hmm. ritual impurity certain sins that are committed that and and so it's like i think if you really look closely at leviticus Every sin leaves a ritually uh, a ritual stain on a person in mm. a sense, and this mm-hmm. is the idea of the sin offering, which really should be understood as a purification offering. Mm. Uh, but that's another another discussion. Mm-hmm. Anyway, John understood these things, and he he said there's a relationship here. You can't you can't separate the two. Now, okay, on another level, you know, I think one of the um, best books that first fruits of zion has published is that adam loves eve book i've 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 heard of that it's great it's really great if anybody hasn't read it you should read it but in there i think i i I believe i recall it's been years since i read it but i believe i recall that it implied that um immersion after a woman's monthly cycle is something that perhaps even a non-jewish follower of Yeshua should practice um I don't uh, you know, I feel it, like maybe, it was in maybe there. it says that I, I don't know I feel I'm like not it, that familiar it, with that I, 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 it was <laughs> it was like kind of a soft sell but I think it was kind of in okay. there it was, so it was like you should give your wife some time alone or something yeah, yeah, it, it yeah. was something, back off buddy it was something <laughs> like that in there but where are, are is there any kind of uh yeah okay, where does that okay. come from okay that okay idea? okay so the question is really maybe we need to maybe we need to frame this this way to say look even for a jewish woman Mm -hmm. a a jewish woman technically doesn't have to shouldn't have to immerse uh, because the laws of ritual purity are off the books and well there's no temple and this is a ritual purity thing okay but that's not true no. That's not true because mm-hmm. she's forbidden to her husband if she's in a state of ritual impurity. Mm-hmm. And this can be derived directly from the Torah. Yes. Okay. So first thing to know is like, this is not just a redundancy or a vestige, a vestige of temple times, but, okay. but for, 
It's okay. not practice right. for but, when the temple but then, stands. Right. So then that opens the question, well, if it's not temple-related, if it's not specifically temple-related, does this also apply to a Gentile? Should should mm-hmm. Would it be good for a Gentile couple if if uh, they were to practice these laws of family purity on some level? Then I would, I would argue, yes, uh, strictly by the Torah. Uh, I would not... I would not advocate adding the additional week that comes through Jewish tradition, but I would say strictly by the Torah, yes, because first of all, the laws regarding Nidah and -hmm. the prohibition of uh, a Nidah Mm -hmm. come in Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18 are the broad laws defining sexual morality for the nations, not just for Israel. Really? Yeah, because he says, because he says specifically, because the Canaanites practiced these mm. things, that's why I am the the land is going to vomit them out. Mm. And so this this <laughs> that's is a really interesting yeah, reference, right? So this is this is would be included in when the apostles give us those four. They say, okay, we want you to, of course, you're going to keep the basic laws of uh, of of. Um, ethical monotheism, what we call the Noahide laws. But then they say, but you should also abstain from things polluted by idols, abstain from uh, from blood, abstain from the food that has been, uh, uh, or what is it, strangled, mm-hmm. uh, from strang- things strangled, and abstain uh, from sexual immorality. Mm-hmm. You say, why do you have to say sexual immorality? I mean, don't we already know that sexual immorality is forbidden from from Leviticus 18? Now, doesn't the Bible say fornication? Yeah, fornication. Okay. N- n- so, is fornication does fornication just mean having sex outside of marriage or does it no, mean not something else? No, not in okay, in in the Torah, mm-hmm. the word is uh zana, right? Okay. So this is the word that we translate as fornication or prostitution. I mean, this is the Hebrew. This is the Hebrew behind what they're talking about. Uh, it, it means any kind of sexual activity okay. outside of the laws of marriage, okay. outside, outside of the confines of marriage. Uh, it's not. It's not just sex for hire, mm-hmm. uh, but rather it's any kind of sexual contact outside of a monogamous marriage. Mm-hmm. Right. Now I have to say that. So first of all, rabbinically. Um, I should say that that for for a Jewish family to wait the uh, uh, after a woman has already had counted seven white days or seven days seven uh, clean days without blood and that, that she has to continue this extra week that you're talking about the I, extra I just week. want to say that it's it's halakhically obligated it's not a tradition it's halakhically obligated but um, that because it's not uh, necessarily a mitzvah deraita. You're saying that this aspect of of the law, because it's rabbinic, it doesn't. And and the rabbis are only legislating for the Jewish for people. the Jewish people. Th- this doesn't apply to non-Jewish women, right? Which would still be a really tough sell rabbinically that non-Jewish women um, would have any reason to go to the mikvah, right? Now, right, 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 could, right. Could are so. What I want to say is that I, I think that we're we're actually having two different conversations. So when when the rabbis are talking about um, non-Jews, they're not talking about they don't have followers of Yeshua as a category. Correct. Right. Christian or Messianic or anything like that isn't a rabbinic category that's being dealt with, and and so when when the um, when the rabbis are talking about legislation for 
for Gentiles, they're talking about proper um, non-Jews, idolaters, people serving other gods who have no knowledge of the God of Israel and no sense of of uh, obligation to the God of Israel. And what I think um, our Messianic tradition is saying is that um, so the nations have no impurity because they never lose any holiness. They didn't have, this is the, the ex- explanation that's given and it makes a certain sense. They never had any um, holiness to begin with. And this impurity that we're talking about is kind of like a, um, a, a, lack, of, a lack of purity. So if you have purity and you lose it, that's called impure. That's interesting. You right. know what this kind of reminds me of is mm-hmm. uh, the the law of the leper, mm-hmm. uh, where if if the leprosy is advancing on him, he's impure, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. But once the leprosy has completely oh, covered him, he's a hundred percent covered by leprosy. He's no longer regarded as unclean. Right. Now he can be regarded as pure. And so maybe the idea is that uh, an idolater, uh, a Gentile idolater has no purity uh, at all because he's completely impure. So he's no, so there, we don't regard the, we don't regard them as pure or impure, ritually clean or ritually unclean because the ritual uncleanness is complete. Mm. So now uh, there's an important idea and this is gonna, if I don't come back to what we're just speaking yeah. on, this notion of, of um, impurity, and and the nations if i don't come back to that bring me back around okay that what's implied here is if there is a need for um women from the nations who are following yeshua to immerse that somehow their relationship and i don't think it's uh i don't think it's anything bewildering their relationship with mashiach has actually given them a level of purity it's elevated their status that they've that they've actually been elevated so there's no reason to be um put off by the rabbinic idea that the nations um, have no purity and therefore don't need to immerse because i think any follower of yeshua would recognize that the world is impure Sure. You know, this would be a great talk to, to like just go through the New Testament and look at all of the examples where the apostles use this language of clean and unclean, pure and impure in regard to the nations, mm-hmm. uh, the, 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 the Gentile disciples of Yeshua. And it's not always just speaking in moral categories. Sometimes mm-hmm. it is speaking in ceremonial categories. Mm-hmm. But certainly, like Yeshua says, if somebody refuses to repent, you should treat them as as a Gentile or a tax collector. Right. Now, does that mean that uh, we should treat our non-Jewish friends like Gentiles and tax collectors? No, because that's not the frame of reference that Yeshua was working in. He wasn't talking about these messianic communities from the nations who he has purified by his blood and his resurrection and all of these things. He's talking about proper going. He's mm-hmm. talking about idolaters who don't know the God of Israel. That's it. And and now, so something has happened. You know, Peter says in Acts 15, before we get that ruling, he says that God has purified their hearts by faith, just as uh, as with us. Exactly. Okay, so this relates to this subject. Now, when when an Israelite, this is another um, another aspect to our mikvah that we're building. We have a men's mikvah, a woman's mikvah, and then we have a, a mikvah for kalim or for, for vessels. For vessels. For uh, dishes and pa- dishes, pots, pots pans. and pans, whatever. Now, when what's the purpose of um, uh, immersing a pot if a, if an israelite person purchases a pot 
um, from from a, a Gentile craftsman, he has to take that pot and immerse it in water. And this has nothing to do with koshering the pot. That's a completely separate activity. This has to do with taking ownership of of this vessel. Right. And so um, the Israelite takes the pot, immerses it into mikvah mine. Yeah, it was a Gentile pot. It was a Gentile pot. It comes out of the water, a Jewish it pot. It comes out a Jewish pot. Now, there's another idea that um, that's that sounds really offensive um, to a lot of people in, in the Christian and in the, the Messianic Gentile world, that in the world to come, the nations, and grab onto your chairs here, don't fall off, that the nations will become slaves to Israel. That Gentiles... We, we prefer the term servants. Uh, Gentiles <laughs> will become servants or slaves, however you like it, to, um, to Jews. And um, this is taught in different places with, with a different tone, right? You might go into one atmosphere and somebody's saying, ah, the Gentiles are going to be slaves uh, to the Jews. And you go into another location and people are saying like, um, ah, the Jewish people, they're going to be like the CEO and the, and the Gentile, they're going to be like their, their and, well, that just sounds like another slap in the face. Right, that's even worse, and, actually. But they're going to be so happy to be, to be slaves. But let's look at this in a different way. First of all, there's a Gentile slave, but there's also a Jewish slave. And By the way, I just want you to know before you're getting all bent out of shape that this is derived directly from the prophets. It's not just some. It's not just some uh, racism or, or some bigotry, some some from ethnocentric Isaiah, elitism. Right? Yeah, from from Isaiah. Mm -hmm. From Isaiah. So, but if we look at this in a, a New Testament context. And as followers of Yeshua, we see that the apostles and all the followers of Yeshua, whether they were Jewish or not, um, they refer to themselves as servants of Mashiach. Right. Servants, a bondservant of Christ. We've all read that in the New Testament. Paul refers to himself as a bondservant of Christ. All the apostles use that language. All the apostles use the language of servitude. And obviously Yeshua says that if somebody wants to become great, they need to become the least. And um, one who wants to be like right. his master should first become like a like a slave. Paul, at one point he says, if, if you're a slave, don't worry about it. Uh, but uh, if you can get your freedom, you should get your freedom because uh, you are Mashiach's freedman and you are slaves to Mashiach. Wow. And so now in that context, we can see, um, so we can see how the use of a mikvah, every, these different, all these different um, representations of what a mikvah is used for, they all kind of funnel into this idea of immersion in Mashiach. And when Yeshua says, I want you to go out and make disciples of all the nations, immersing them, okay, he's taking the nations as his slaves. Now it's true. Um, there are, you know, lots of Gentiles who are um, following anti-missionary, anti-missionaries, and uh, you know, uh, Rabbi Singer. You can go ahead and you can be his slave in the world to come if you want to. No thanks. On his little four-foot patch of grass or whatever he has, I don't know, but uh, it's going to be filled with lots of people um, eating off his plate. But or you can decide to become a servant of Yeshua, who's going to be king of the entire world. And I don't think that there's any shame in that. And so somebody who has been immersed, 
Um, in the same way that the Israelite takes the pot or the pan and they immerse that that kli in the mikvah water and then it comes out as belonging to the people of Israel, Yeshua says, I want you to go and immerse all the nations. And so if you've been immersed in the name of Mashiach, well, now you belong to him. And because you're his servant, you've actually achieved a certain level of purity and you've come in to the people Mm-hmm. Uh, on on a certain level, you've entered the Am. So while you haven't become Jewish, you have entered Am Yisrael, and you are a person who belongs, quite literally, you belong to Israel. That's right. Because you belong to the King of Israel. That's right. And this is exactly what Yeshua said. And I can give the example also. Another example I like to give is um, with, with the meat um, that's been offered on the altar. The average Israelite doesn't eat meat that belongs to the Kohen, that belongs to the priest. Right. Right. The, the sacred portions. The, yep. the sacred portion of meat that be, that is only given to the to, to, to the Kohanim, that that meat's holy, right? Don't give what's holy to the dogs. The average Israelite, the average Jew, can't eat that meat. But definitely not a non-Jew. A Gentile can't eat the the holy um, that's been given to the, to the Kohen. But if a Gentile becomes a slave to the high priest, let's say, if a Gentile becomes a servant in the home of the priest, then even the Gentile bypasses the 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 natural born Jew and can eat from the table of the priest. Matter of fact, he's commanded to feed him what's holy. It's. I know that law applies to truma. Does it also apply to the the korbanot? Um, we'll have to we'll have to take a look at it. That's a, that's beautiful. The priest has to feed um, his servant from his table. The, the The servant has has entered in to to the family of of the kohen, and that's what's going on with Yeshua. He's the king, and he says the way to exaltation is through servitude. It's through slavery. It's through humility. So. When, um, when these kinds of things are heard, when the idea that uh, that the nations will become servants of Israel, yeah, the nations are going to serve Israel. You can decide right now which Israelite it is that you'd like to serve, and you can become a servant of the king. And you can have, what's the difference between the servant of the king and the average Israelite? The average Israelite cannot approach the palace. If, if the average Israelite walks up to the palace and tries to open the door, the guard's going to kill him. If he walks in, he makes it into the palace and he tries to go into the king's chamber, he's going to be slaughtered right there in the middle of the hallway. But the slave has access to the king. The servant puts his shoes on and gets him his coat and hands him his hat. And the servant has a relationship with the king that's unbroken at all times. And so when you're a servant, serving in the house of of the king you have that close access you have you can eat from the master's table and truly that slavery is an exaltation and so we see in we see a lot of very amazing drashot a lot of uh, amazing sermons that can be preached um off of off of this this idea of a mikvah yeah and each one of them is very very relevant to our lives as followers of yeshua but so okay so going back to our point that whereas the um, the nations don't inherently have any kind of purity, 
um, if you're part of the world, you don't have um, any impurity to lose. And so therefore, you never become impure because you didn't lose any purity to begin with. But when you become a servant of the king and you enter into the Am and now you belong to Israel, you belong to the king of Israel, now you can contract an impurity. You can lose uh, your tahara if you're right. a woman and, and you and you might need to go through a process of repairing that. Right, and your 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 marriage now is on the level of the holy. Yes. And so, for example, in the Epistle to the Hebrews, when it says, uh, keep the marriage bed pure, keep mm-hmm. the marriage bed clean. Uh, obviously, the Epistle to the Hebrews is written to the Hebrews, but nevertheless, that's a principle to be derived directly from the New Testament. Uh, going back to Acts 15, mm-hmm. okay. to... So we said, we've got back in Acts 15, Peter is saying, hey, God has purified their hearts uh, by faith, just like he's purified us. And so this this indicates that there is this level of what you're saying, that this level of purity that's been imputed to the Gentile disciple of Yeshua. I think that can be borne out then in the uh, prohibitions that the apostles lay upon them when they say, uh, don't eat the eat anything that has been polluted by idols. Okay, okay. So this is... It's, it, they're not saying don't eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. I mean, that that already, you know, is th- that would be enough to say don't eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. But they say don't even eat things that have been polluted by idols. Now, somebody out there right now, just we, we can't we can't linger on it too long. But somebody out there right now is saying, oh, this guy doesn't know his Bible. Paul says it's fine to eat things sacrificed to idols. Oh, well, is that the case? He doesn't, you know, there's you got to read the whole the whole epistle of first Corinthians, not, not just. A and I think verses. what happens is first he sets up the opinion of his adversaries right. who have the opinion that they can. Eat what's things. an idol? Yeah. What's an idol? He says, okay, I hear your point. What's an idol. Okay, fine, fine. You know that they don't exist. But then what he says is, um, he gives, he gives another version of the statement of if, if eating meat is going to offend my brother, I'll just eat only vegetables, mm-hmm. which we know from other Romans Christian writings that well, yep. mm-hmm. he actually did just eat vegetables. Also, I think Peter was also a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Um, when they went out in, in throughout the world spreading spreading the the news of Mashiach, they refrained from eating meat. Yeah, Daniel Daniel style. Like, Dan, like they Daniel also had a prophet. reference for this. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yep. coming right from from the prophet Daniel, and so this isn't something that Paul. No. advocates for no 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 in fact he's pretty explicit that you, you know this you don't want to eat from the table of demons right uh and so yeah we can talk about that another time but yeah. straighten that out because yeah. people do get that all bollocks up yeah but okay so that's a purity concern mm-hmm. is like things polluted by idols um another purity concern then is uh don't eat the meat of strangled animals well what is the problem with eating the meat of strangled animals well the torah says that something that dies of itself that that's a carcass that's tray for novella something that's torn or died of itself can't you sell that to a gentile oh yeah yeah you can sell it to a gentile but now we're talking yes you can sell it to a gentile but now we would be talking about somebody who is a real gentile uh-huh. and not somebody who has been brought into this economy of Israel, uh-huh. the stranger among you that the apostles are working with, uh-huh. the idea of uh, the, um, uh, I guess, uh, the, the, the messianic Gentile, to lack of better terms. The, yeah, the servant of Mashiach. The servant of Mashiach mm-hmm. shouldn't be eating that. So, Traif and Nevela, what's the problem with Traif and Nevela? Those are purity concerns. Because Traif and Nevela, it's not, it's not like, oh, this meat is bad. It's that 
this meat transmits uncleanness. So that's a purity concern to say, abstain from the meat of strangled animals, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so then blood. Well, okay, blood, blood is a major concern uh, th- through the Torah, you know, not to ingest blood. But also, it's, um, this is a, in reference to the manner of slaughter, that when you slaughter, you do slaughter something, the blood is, is to be poured out, it's to be buried, and so forth, it says in the Torah. But then sexual immorality. This also is a purity concern. Mm-hmm. And so I have this passage from Clementine Homilies to back this up. So okay. I, want, I want to show how this was understood in the broader apostolic community, transmitted through the early believers in Yeshua. So we have this second century text, second century... Uh, now, when I hear Clementine, I either think of oranges or valentines. Right. Okay, so I- Clement... Oh, I left my phone and I was like making, I should shut that off. Rookie mistake. Yeah. Happens to me every day. All right. The Clementine homilies, what, what year is this from? Shut off. Power off. You got to like, you know how many <laughs> buttons you have to press to shut a phone off? They, don't, just they, they don't want you to shut it off. It's just insane. Okay, so Clementine homilies, Clementine, Clement, Clementine. Clement, Clement was the disciple of Peter. He's mentioned in, he's mentioned also in the school of Paul. So is that a Latin name, Clement? Yeah, I guess so. Okay, I guess it is. Uh, he's an early early disciple, and uh, he's he's the guy that Peter leaves in charge at Rome. Uh, and it, so some people call him the first pope, I guess. But was he the second? Like, does the Catholic Church say he's the second pope? Second or third. Oh, really? First, okay. second or third. I All don't right. remember. I don't know. He's somewhere in the order there. Right. Um, Epistle of Clement. This is straight from the Pope. No. Yeah, straight okay. from the Pope. This is what we've got. Uh, no. <laughs> don't. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> if it's going to help you out out there. Okay. <laughs> All right. In any case, Clementine homilies uh-huh. is second century. Early, er- early stuff. Yeah, it's early stuff. It, it could be third century by the time we get the redaction that we currently have, the recension that we have is probably coming from the third century. But the core text is a, a document called the Kerygma of Peter, the preaching of Peter. Okay. And so Clementine homilies, it, it comes through the church fathers, but it is some of the most messianic Jewish stuff you will ever read. In any case, in this particular passage, I'm going to read to you, uh, it's supposed to be Peter speaking. Okay. Uh, and Peter is basically explaining what is required of the non-Jews uh, based on the Acts 15 ruling. And he says, And this is the service he has appointed, to worship him only, so monotheism, uh, and to trust only in the prophet of truth. So that's the teaching of Yeshua, the prophet of truth. And to be immersed for the remission of sins. That's what we were talking about regarding John the Immerser. Immersed for the remission of sins and and the master's call to immerse the nations in in my name. And thus, by this pure immersion, Hmm. to be born again unto God by saving water. Then he goes on. To abstain from the table of devils. That is, from food offered to idols. To abstain from dead carcasses, from animals which have been suffocated or caught by wild beasts. So that's the meat of strangled animals. Mm -hmm. And from blood. Not to live any longer impurely. To wash after intercourse. 
that the women on their part should keep the law of purification, Hmm. that all should be sober-minded, given to good works, refraining from wrongdoing, uh, looking for eternal life from the all-powerful God, and asking with prayer and continual supplication that they may win it. Such was Peter's counsel to the men of Sidon. Uh, so that's an amazing passage because what it does is it kind of it takes those those four uh, four laws that we get from Acts 15 and explodes them out and says, okay, here's the implications of that. Here's the ramifications. This is what we meant by these things, which would be something that the apostles would transmit orally mm-hmm. as they're as they're presenting these four standards uh, to the communities of the Gentile disciples. And Peter was somebody who was at the table while they were having this conversation. Right, he was part of the decision. He was part of the decision. He was the one defending the nations. Yes. Right, so we have the person who was defending the nations in their, um, that they did not need to become Jewish. Right. And here we have um, Peter, as far as these writings can be trusted, and and they definitely, they, they sound ancient. When you read the Clementine homilies, or Clementine Recognitions, are those, those are different reco- works? Yeah, Recognitions is a little different. Recognitions is based on homilies. Uh, okay. I, I'd recommend sticking with homilies. But, but both of them sound so Jewish, so ancient, so messianic. Oh, for sure. So clearly they're, authentic. They're transmitting, if, they, if that's not really Peter speaking, and we can't say that it is, but nevertheless, it is an authentic messianic Jewish voice from the early centuries of our faith. Yeah. Uh, that's not, uh, that, do, that did not come out of the church. That text did not come out of, out of the church. It's messianic Jewish material. And also there's no, this doesn't benefit anyone, right? So like if, if, you, if, if I tell you, um, hey, you guys, I'm a, I'm a kosher butcher, and uh, all Gentiles have to eat kosher meat. Well, then you think, well, I see your angle yeah, on yeah, this, yeah, buddy. Yeah, 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 I got it. Right? Yep. But if, 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 if Peter or, or in the name of Peter, someone is saying um, that these women who are not Jewish, who are followers of Yeshua, that they should also practice the laws of family purity, well, there's nothing in it for them. There's, right. there's absolutely they they're not even going to be aware whether or not it's happening or not. Right. Uh, so this is and this is clearly somebody they don't have any uh, they don't Hid, have a no dog hi, in the fight. Yeah. No hidden agenda. Right? No hidden agenda. That's okay. what I'm looking for. They okay. have no hidden agenda, and there's no other reason except for the fact that they believe that this is the truth. Right. And they're transmitting what was the tradition. They're transmitting the tradition of the early Gentile disciples of Yeshua, you know, that, which is a lost tradition because mm-hmm. it, it was lost in the church, right? But, mm-hmm. okay, so in, 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 to summarize, it's just an astonishing passage because to summarize what you would come away from that is like, well, a Gentile disciple, according to their tradition, mm-hmm. you know, not from the New Testament necessarily, but f- from their tradition, a Gentile disciple should be eating uh, kosher slaughtered meat. Uh, and uh, so USDA doesn't, isn't going to cut it there. No, kosher slaughter meat because um, they're they're telling us that we can't eat an animal, and I'm identifying now uh, hypothetically with with people from the nations here, that a Christian's not allowed to eat an animal that's died on its own or that's been strangled, and that they actually should be eating meat that they know was slaughtered correctly. That's that's what I'm saying. And according to this, not only 
slaughtered correctly, but salted the meat salted the right slaughtered the, in a jewish like, manner and prepared in a jewish manner like like so the whole process so slaughtered salted the whole thing that's that's what this that's text what's is. being implied there and so i'm just look i'm not mm-hmm. i'm not trying to like for, force any force this on anyone yeah believe me yeah. uh i really am not trying to like compel anyone to adopt that i'm just saying this is what the standard was back then but now here's the thing it kind of sounds like that's what the apostles were trying to compel people to do well yeah from acts 15 it sounds because that in way. acts 15 i think is it three out of four of these commandments are related to food yeah it's that's true right. it's truly bizarre because the table that's where we all meet right that's three out of four dun, dun, and then dun, dun, the, dun, no pun intended <laughs> that's yeah. It, yeah. three out of four are dietary laws and then and then the fourth one is this sexual immorality well, law which which he is saying like even men should be going to the mikvah and and, sure. and and practicing uh ritual purity yeah and and this is like outside of a temple context that we're we're talking about we're talking to gentiles up in sidon in mm-hmm. in this story so uh this is up in um lebanon who yeshua said was a he said that was a nasty bunch, right? With the Sidonians? Yeah, didn't they come up? Well, they, he's he's up there in Sidon, I believe. When um, when when the woman says, "Hey, will you heal my daughter?" and he uh-huh. says, uh, uh, "It's the the bread is for the children," and she says, "But even the the dogs at the table eat the crumbs that fall from from the er, fall, fall from the table, right?" So that's wow. yeah. Okay, so now, but both of these things are are I don't, I don't know. I think. I think it's easy to go to Trader Joe's and find a package of meat that has a label on it that says that it was slaughtered correctly. But it it's more difficult for what do you say to the the man or the woman who doesn't live near a mikvah and they're not Jewish so they're not going to go to the Jewish mikvah um but they don't they don't live near a messianic how many how many messianic mikvah are there? I don't know of any I don't know of any either. I know of maybe one, if that guy's still a believer, but it's like a muddy hole in his backyard. So if you want to do that, uh, okay. you can. But but uh, where? But why aren't there mikvah uh, okay, in the so messianic let, world? Let, let's 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 talk about that. Let's for, talk about forget it. about forget about forget about Gentiles for a minute. Okay, here let's just talk about <laughs> messianic Jews. Sorry, guys. Okay, so right. so let's just talk about messianic Jews and why messianic Jews don't have a mikvah. I'm not saying like okay, so. I have been in Messianic Jewish congregations where there's a baptismal, and they use that as a mikvah, like a, like a Baptist-style mm-hmm. baptismal that functions as their mikvah, so I want to call say, that their mikvah. So I want to say that if a, if a man has a discharge or if a man is with his wife, that he can go into a swimming pool and immerse, and that is enough for a man. So a, a man is permitted... That, that does work. By on, Jewish law. By Jewish law, a Jewish man is able to go into a swimming pool and, and immerse. But that uh, that kind of pool that's not a mikvah does not qualify whatsoever for conversion or for a woman on her cycle. Um, for those... Right. For those for, mm-hmm. for conversion, for a woman on her cycle, and for the immersion of vessels, is my understanding, it has to be... Uh, a mikvah by the the exacting standards yeah. of Jewish law. Yeah. Everything else is pretty much flexible mm-hmm. because, and the reason that the other stuff is flexible is because we're, the temple isn't standing today, mm-hmm. and so we're only doing we're only practicing ritual purity uh, in in 
in regard to those types of things, uh, in sort of in remembrance of when the temple was standing. Stand. Mm -hmm. I'm not not to discount it, mm -hmm. not to discount that it's a real thing, mm -hmm. uh, but just to say that it doesn't carry the weight of law, mm -hmm. whereas a woman after her cycle mm -hmm. uh, carries the weight of law. Mm -hmm. And now, okay, so Muslim women, Muslim women, I know, um, practice something where something vaguely related where um, after a woman's cycle, she'll take a, a shower and shower in this kind of ritual order sure. where she's washing her body in a particular way. And I know that there's um, also in the in the Didache where it talks about um, immersion. Right, right. It says right. that if you don't have a mikvah mayan, which it mentions, and then it says, and if you don't have bore mikvah mayim, and if you don't have, you know, it says that if if you if you don't have cold water, which you should use. Um, this is all in agreement with rabbinic thought, by right. the way. Right, and it, it it kind of comes down to like it's like it starts like best case scenario, mm -hmm. you're going to immerse mm -hmm. in living water. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, and then it goes through like, but if you don't have that, and if you don't have that, and if you don't have that, and then you kind of come down to like, you can just pour buckets of water over somebody's head right. if necessary so, for, a, for, a, for a conversion into the school of Yeshua's disciples for, for this. Uh, and I've, I've definitely seen this. I've, I've seen, I've seen Jewish guys, you know, with uh, a, a guy who is out in the middle of nowhere and he gets a couple buddies and they've got a couple of buckets of water and they dump buckets of water over his head while he's standing standing up three buckets in a, in in quick succession and and uh and that's an immersion and that is that does it is valid for a certain kind of immersion well that works for a chevra too right i mean it works for a chevra also and we're talking about um a chevra kadisha that uh, takes care of the dead um that you can also immerse the dead this way and so now according to the didache this also is um, this is enough for immersion um, in the sense of, I'm going to use the word baptism. Yeah. Yeah. So, so baptism, so you're, so being immersed in a baptismal for the sake of immersion in Yeshua, for the sake of baptism would be fine. Plenty sufficient. Plenty sufficient. Okay. But going back, but this other issue of immersion for the sake of family purity that's what I'm talking um, this about. This is something different. That's what I'm talking about. And that's the question. Why Why don't Messianic Jewish mm -hmm. synagogues have a mm -hmm. concern for this? Mm -hmm. And also with, with conversions. I've I've met, I, I was aware of, of an early conversion that took place in one of the Messianic Jewish uh, organizations where, um, where there was a conversation about, oh yeah, you know, we didn't have a, a mikvah, so somebody you know, put plastic in the back of their truck and they filled it up with ocean water and then they drove it over. And I just my, thought to myself, well, that was an incredible waste of time because the moment that that ocean water went into the back of the truck, it became bucket water and um, doesn't have the same status as ocean water any longer. You've you've cut it off from the ocean and it's no longer ocean water. So, But what a story. <laughs> so all these, all these strange games we play, um, they... And they they don't hold water, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm here all night. But but we so with with the issue of family purity, and with the issue of conversion, there's no fudging with that. Right. This this we, you need a mikvah. Okay, and so this gets to a point that I really wanted to make in this podcast, and that is that the mikvah, as you know is absolutely access to a mikvah i should put it that way mm -hmm. access to a mikvah is 
mission critical for a Jewish community that's trying to do Judaism. You can't do Judaism without a mikvah. Mm-hmm. And that would include, hopefully, Messianic Jews as well. You would think. You would think. So I, let me ask you this. I've heard this said before that um, if a community has, uh, a, a community is starting, and so you're starting a, a new Jewish community, and you need everything at this point, that a mikvah takes priority over a Torah scroll. It's mm-hmm. more important. But I've been in, like, I think of all the Messianic congregations that I've been in, and they all have Torah scrolls, mm-hmm. right? I mean, almost all of them. And, mm-hmm. and we have, like, you know, what, four? Four of them. Four yeah. Torah scrolls. Baruch Hashem. Yeah, Baruch Hashem. But, uh, but no mikvah. But no mikvah. Yeah. Is, is that true? Have you heard that before? But, oh, yeah, absolutely. You're, matter of fact, you're supposed to, if you have a Torah, you're supposed to be willing to sell the Torah in order to raise funds to build a mikvah. Well, there we go. Well, now now we're on the hook again. It's us, not them. But we should sell some of those sell Torahs. Sell those Torahs. But, uh, but thank God we're actively building a mikvah right now. Um, you know, it's in it's in the planning stages, and we've got blueprints, and we're in conversation with uh, architects. And, oh, it's beautiful! And we're we've got rabbinic guidance on this, and and uh, and there's going to be a mikvah in Hudson, Wisconsin. Now, if somebody, I I know that you know, I used to live in Seattle, and in Seattle, I remember hearing stories about. Um, a a rabbinite or, or a rabbitson, a rabbi's wife, who I think lived in Anchorage, and at the time there was no mikvah in Anchorage, I believe. If uh, forgive me if I'm getting no, the that's city right, wrong, that's right. and she would make flights to Seattle to come and use the the Seattle mikvah because her um her need for a mikvah was matter of fact, there wasn't any way around it. And she wasn't going to immerse in, in the ocean in Alaska during the winter time. And so she would fly out when she needed to. And obviously this isn't something that in, in, in reality usually happens, um, every month. And what I mean by that is in a normal Jewish family, um, a woman will immerse before she gets pregnant. Um, she will um, immerse uh, to purify her from her nida, and then you know she'll get pregnant, Baruch Hashem. And and when she and when she's pregnant, and then she has a baby, well then, when when the time's appropriate, she's going to immerse after she had that baby. But then after she's had a baby, there's probably going to be a couple years that she's not going to need to go to the mikvah because she's not going to have a cycle. And if she's nursing her baby, if she's nursing. Well, every woman's different. Every woman's different. But there's a lot of time in a married life where a woman isn't actually going to the mikvah all the time because she's not having a cycle, or like you know, if if somebody's working very very hard and and her cycle stops, if she's like an Olympian or something, and doesn't have a cycle. Well, that woman doesn't need to go to the mikvah. Um, on a monthly basis, but a woman who's having a regular cycle or a woman who's uh, menopausal or something, you know, postmenopausal. But if, uh, but if a woman is having a normal cycle, well, then she needs to go, you know, roughly every month, sometimes more often, um, sometimes less, you know, in, in the, in the Brecharasha, we have the story of the woman with the issue of blood, you know, for 12 years. Now, does, does that mean that she was literally, um, having an issue of blood every single day for 12 years probably not 
But what it does mean is that she never got to the point where she could go to the mikvah. Oh, yeah. And this is still, I mean, this is obviously a problem for women today. There are lots of Jewish women who who have an irregular cycle, and they really suffer um, quite a lot um, by something like this. But we see that for this woman, it was incredibly important. Um, she she was alone. I don't know what, ha- what it has to do with that woman, with a girl. There's a woman who's got to issue a blood oh, for yeah. 12 well, years. There's 12 years. The and woman, then there's and the, the girl the t- who's 12, 12 years old. 12 years, she's 12 years old. Some so, kind of relationship. Oh, no, no, no. It's uh, What is it? What's okay, going on Okay, so there? what's going on there is we have right, and this happens in a lot of these miracle stories in Mark, mm-hmm. where you have two levels of reading the text. There's what's literally happening, but at the same time, it's a living parable. Mm. Uh, so you, the, the miracle is happening as sort of this living parable of the redemption. And so the woman with the issue of blood, she represents Zion, who is uh, unclean, and she's you know, carrying her menstrual impurity, like it says in uh, in, in Eka mm-hmm. and, and such. And and through her con- through through coming to the Messiah and laying hold of the Messiah, she's cleansed. And mm-hmm. then and then the, the the daughter, she's 12 years old. Again, the number 12 is Israel, it's Zion. Mm-hmm. So the Messiah is raising up the, you know, from, from your slumber, wake up, wake up, mm-hmm. it, it says in, in the prophets, and he, he wakes up the, so we could, that's a but whole other topic. Of, but both of these things are related because here we have a, a, a woman who's nida. Unclean. Touching Yeshua's garment, right. at, at least. I don't, she doesn't touch him, but she grabs hold of his seat seat. Uh, and then you have um, someone who was dead. Unclean. And that that's the greatest level yeah. of, of impurity. And he, yeah, and he takes her hand, right? And yeah, he raises her up and he says, you know, little girl, get up. And so we have this, this idea of, of Mashiach being like the mikvah itself. So if the carcass falls into the mikvah, the mikvah never becomes impure, mm. right? Anything unclean can go into the mikvah, but the mikvah itself never becomes impure. Um, and and Yeshua becomes like this mikvah, right? That he's the mikvah. That right. anything touches him, and this purity goes out from him, right? So so just for clarification, for uh, we we don't we're not implying that he wasn't subject to the laws of of clean and unclean, no. and that he wasn't an observant Jew and he wasn't uh, living by the Torah's standards of of the purity laws. But we're saying what well, what you're saying, if I'm if I'm reading this right, you're saying that on a spiritual level, on a spiritual level, he is the source of purity. He's mm-hmm. the source of, of of spiritual purity and ritual purity that's going out from him. Like uh, he is the mikveh Yisrael, mm-hmm. the hope of Israel, mm-hmm. like it says in Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. So that word mikveh, it strangely it means it means a gathering of water. Right, gathering of water. But there's a homonym, uh-huh. uh, which means uh, hope. Like wow. like the word tikva is wow. hope, so mikva is just I'd a like source it, of hope. Yeah, a source of hope. It's mm-hmm. that's what it, what do you call that? It's a, a participle form of the of the of the word mikva. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so mikva can can be read as hope. So, so for for Messianic Jews, um, it's fundamental to have a mikva, and our our tradition is absolutely like uh knit together and tied up in all of these ritual terms and these actions and this immersion and the same way of the the rabbi's wife in 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 uh, anchorage coming down to seattle you know when we have our mikvah will people be able to make a phone call and 
schedule a time when they can come out and use the mikvah if they need to. Man, absolutely. I, I want I, I I want the mikvah to be the mikvah for the Messianic Jewish movement, mm-hmm. so that the Messianic Jewish movement in North America is, mm-hmm. can be a model for them, but mm-hmm. also that. This is, and not just for the Messianic Jewish movement. It's, it's we're we're building it as a kosher mikvah so that any Jew should be able to, any yeah. Jew should be able to use the mikvah. Absolutely. So it's going to be up to um, halachic standards. It's going to be a clean, beautiful place. Uh, the men's mikvah is separate from the women's mikvah. It's private. This is something that's also quite different than um, baptism. Yeah, baptism in the Christian tradition is obviously a, a public affair, right? But the way that we do it here, it's it's a smaller, more private affair. It's not like the whole congregation gathers by the riverside. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a small. The elders usually it's the elders and a couple witnesses, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, then we do the after after the immersion. Mm-hmm. Then we bring them into the community and into the congregation. Now, if you're immersing, if you're immersing a man, do you does he dress in his mikvah suit for this, or what does he wear? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a uh, we've not had that opportunity to have a private beach. Okay. Um, so up till now, uh-huh. uh, we have always been using the river. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, it's it's very public. Mm-hmm. And you know, the St. Croix, there's boats going up and down. I mean, sometimes there's like a tour boat going by. Like there's, you know, so there's, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's in swimming suits, which is holacically, you know, that actually works. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, if, if because... At least from the perspective of the Didache, this uh, immersion into Yeshua is on the level of uh, a man with a discharge that he right. that uh, simply pouring three pours of water, right. which is where. So there's like, just a lot. It's it's a lot looser, is what, he, what you're saying. Is the Jewish law? Yeah. Is, it would be a lot. It applies a lot more loosely than it would for a woman. After now, the Catholics. That's where they got their sprinkling thing. Is it? Yeah, from the Didache? Yeah, you think? Because yeah. because the word for pour is kind of ambiguous, and and they they do a little bit of they sprinkle, um, they but I I feel like I feel like they've kind of fallen off track a bit. There yeah. should be the presence of lots of water. Yeah. Oh, I like the way the Orthodox do it. The or, How I mean, do the Orthodox I, I, I mean, do it? I mean Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. When, How do they do it? Well, they got the baby. They just take that baby and oh, and they and throw it in. Yeah. Bloosh. Yeah. Yeah. They, Three <laughs> times. Bloosh. They really get it. Bloosh. Yeah. yeah they've got. Yeah. Absolutely. What, what's fascinating is that I think it's um, uh, Rashbats, who is a, a Sephardic rabbi. Um, I think he's living in the, the 1500s when he he discusses Yeshua and his teachings at length and he says that he commanded his disciples to immerse the nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he said, and in in doing this, he was in agreement with rabbinic law. Uh? Yeah, yeah, it's very curious. But because that um, those three names um, represent three immersions in the water and it's very common for somebody to immerse three times right. a convert will go into the water and immerse three times um uh, and then say shema um uh, after lifting their head up out of the water um uh, and very often you know even a man who's immersing for for some reason a lot of men immerse every single morning some men just immerse um friday mornings before shabbat um but men will often immerse at least three or more times. Some people will do right. 13 times, you know. We should point out, because people don't know, we should mm-hmm. point out that in, in Judaism, 
it's not normal anymore for for men to immerse uh, except in uh, except in Haredi circles mm-hmm. and uh, specifically Hasidic circles in mm-hmm. in Hasidic Judaism. I mean, the Baal Shem Tov was rigorous about this with his disciples. Mm-hmm. They they immersed every day, mm-hmm. every day for for immersion. So uh, you might, if you go to the, your local Reform temple or your conservative synagogue, the men there are not uh, are not uh, you know they're not worried about access to the mikvah before Shabbat. Okay, mm-hmm. but in you know you go to Jerusalem. And yeah. yeah, well, you you lived in Jerusalem. Well, what in am Jeru- I telling you for? No, I had I had a neighbor. This guy, oh, Eliyahu. Uh, I won't say his last name, but this guy, what a tzaddik! I mean, honestly, when you saw him, he's the kind of guy just wearing a sweater and khakis. He looks like any Joe Schmo on the street, but his face just glowed. And I remember him. Um, you know, inviting me to come with him to the hotel. He'd dive into the hotel at, uh, at sunrise uh, every day. You know, he'd been doing that for the last 25 years. And he also immersed in a mikvah at the Kotel um, every day for, for 25 years. He hadn't missed he hadn't missed a single opportunity to, to immerse in a mikvah in the morning. And this guy was just a tzaddik. I mean, you just felt it when, you, when he walked by. He was such a saint, just a sweet, sweet, sweet soul. Um, but so, but, but this was also the way, it's not just... Uh, you know, Hasidim and 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 people living in Jerusalem, but also the apostles. Oh yeah, right. The apostles were people who immersed on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. of course. You know, they're not. It's not just one and done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, immersion is is just a part of Jewish life. So, but much wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait. It doesn't talk about one one baptism. Oh, well, okay. One one baptism meaning. Mm-hmm. Meaning we have one shared immersion into Messiah. Mm. It doesn't mean that, and then you never go in the water again for anything else. Right. Because no, there's all sorts of reasons that you would be immersing in the first century, in the second century, and it's most of what we've discussed already. And I think Yeshua references this when he says to Peter, um, Peter says, you know, he's talking about washing his feet and Peter says, you know, no, Lord, don't wash my feet. And he said, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. And he says, well, then wash everything. Wash, wash my hands, my face, my head. Wash the whole thing. And he says, no, because somebody who's already been washed only needs to wash their feet. Right. right. And he's talking to a guy who immerses every single morning. Right. And so he's he's kind of... Uh, it, it's a, And it's right before Passover. And it's right before Pesach. So all these guys had, had immersed because the Yom Tov was coming, yeah. the holiday was coming. Yeah. So this is something that happens um, usually for a woman right before, the first time a woman will go to the mikvah will be right before her wedding. Sure. And so she's immersing so that she can come together with her husband. And that's kind of the imagery is immersion to bring unity between the husband and the wife, immersion to bring unity between Mashiach and his people, immersion to bring unity between... um, uh, Hashem, the presence of God, the Shekhinah, and and the visitors who are coming to the Beit Hamikdash. This is about it's about unity. Um, it's about bringing bringing things that are separated, bringing them together, and that's the importance of the mikvah. That's the message of the mikvah. Yeah, wholeness for for us as disciples and as uh, New Testament uh, readers and such. Mm-hmm. I think about like just how much what a huge what a huge piece of real estate the mikvah should occupy in mm-hmm. our thought and our theology and our practice, like it does in the New Testament. You know, I mean, uh, in in uh, 
in Jewish communities or, or like Jewish communities from the first century, second century, third century, mm-hmm. archaeologists, you know how they determine if it was a Jewish community when they're just looking at rocks in the ground, you know, it's like who lived here? They, the first thing they look for is a mikvah. Right. A mikvah is how you, how an archaeologist determines, yes, there was a Jewish community here. And so this is how important, how fundamental, you, like we were saying, you can't have, uh, you can't have a Jewish community today without a mikvah. Yeah. It's just impossible. But I'm saying, if that's the case for the general Jewish community, how much more so should it be for the Messianic Jewish community that has all of this theological stuff stacked on immersion, mm-hmm. such as immersion into Messiah, mm-hmm. uh, the use of the the use of the the, the mikvah for immersion of, uh, of of repentance and confession of sin, like we learn from John the Immerser mm-hmm. and so forth. All the way, all the way through the New Testament, you, you, the New Testament opens up with emergence, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's all the way through. So mm-hmm. I'm just saying, if it's important for the Jewish community, so important that you would sell your Torah scrolls in mm-hmm. order to dig a mikvah. So important you'd sell your world to come. Yeah. yeah, so important that you'd sell your world to come. How much more so should it be for us? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think we uh, hopefully we answered some of those questions that are out there. Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem.